0: Hello and welcome to Eden Exchanges, the business journey podcast by Eden Exchange. Today we speak to Kevin Bajaya, who is the managing director of Franchise for You, speaking on behalf of the famished wolf franchise. Listen as Kevin chats about his extensive experience in the franchising sector, his role in the famished wolf franchise, and why you should consider a franchising opportunity. Listen on to discover more. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Gary Powell from the Eden Exchange team. Today, our guest is Kevin Bajaya, who is the Managing Director of Franchise4U and today I'm going to be talking to Kevin about franchising in general, but also about a very new and exciting franchise opportunity called The Famish Wolf. Welcome Kevin.
1: Thank you, Gary. It's good to be
0: here. Kevin, you've got enormous experience in franchising over 20 years. Um, yeah,
1: 28 years, heading into almost
0: 29 very soon, so. Well, congratulations, you've been a franchisee, a, a member of franchisor management teams, you're a consultant to franchisors, and a franchisor in your own right. Can you give us a bit of background about how you got started in franchising, and I'll use that as a, sort of like a, I know franchising is a means to an end, and not an industry in itself, but could you fill us in on some of your roles that you've had? And
1: Yeah, thanks Gary. Look, I suppose the reality is I've always been interested in business from a very young age and franchising just seemed like a really smart model where you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to find a version of that wheel that works for you and there are different franchise systems that suit different people and many of them are very successful. Just like any industry or any business or any sector, there are good and bad ones and that's something that I believe a lot of the years that I've spent in this sector has helped understand how to identify strong and good opportunities and also the ones to be very cautious to perhaps not work with and not get as involved with from history, certain types of behaviour of franchisors create uh, very negative results and poor franchise systems. So it's been a great learning. I've been a franchisee myself. My my first experience as a franchisee was becoming the very first franchisee for Nando's in Australia. That was a very great and successful experience. So I was able to make what was a unprofitable, run-down, company-owned store and become their first franchisee and turned it into the most profitable store out of 16 countries in the world, not only in Australia. It was a great part of my success and understanding franchising from a practical point of view. As a consultant, you're always quoting results that in many cases you haven't had first-hand experience. Becoming a franchisee gave me that exact understanding of the empathy and understanding of what a franchisee goes through to be successful. It's probably my love of franchising has extended since those days.
0: And some of the other roles and franchises you've worked with, Kevin.
1: Look, I've, I've owned one of the largest franchise consultancies in franchise recruitment space for many years, and I still play in that in that arena. And we've been involved in building some of Australia's you know household brands, and that's something that I've been very proud of. I've been a franchisor twice now in my career. I'm currently a part owner of Walker's Donuts, which was a client of mine that I have now invested into. Uh, I suppose all of these things all link together the experience you get as a franchisor, the experience you get as a franchisee, and that as a consultant. And originally from a background in sales and banking, kind of all weigh almost mesh together and do work in that I've got a very good understanding of where everyone's coming from in business, what a bank's looking for because of my banking background, the empathy that's required to understand where the franchisor is coming from. Franchisors want successful franchisees. No one sets out to build a franchise model to have franchisees fail. If you've got a failure in your franchise system, it's a bit like a black mark against your name as a a franchisor. Franchises are not there to be sold our job is really to understand the model uh, we're selling opportunity to join a group but that's where the selling kind of stops and the work of recruitment where we're looking for the the perfect candidate begins
0: yep and yeah you know, that empathy is so important isn't it like you said you're not selling a franchise you're really educating somebody as to whether or not this business opportunity is right for you
1: yeah some of our most successful franchisees are typically employed. Sometimes they may not be, and they could be in between opportunities. But for a lot of those that are employed, they are in the process of having to make a decision to not only invent a fairly large amount of money, but also leave a career or a job behind that's paying them money for the uncertainty of a business that is still unknown to them, how much it will make them, particularly for new greenfield opportunities, which when we're growing franchise models is typically what we start with in granting those franchises. So, you know, that empathy is really important to understand and be previously in the shoes of an applicant where I've had to make those same decisions and understand how hard it is and even trying to make those decisions and communicating that to your loved ones and family and friends that you're about to embark on something that many times is faced with a lot of negativity. Sometimes I think friends are a little bit nervous for you. They can also be a little bit jealous when you say that you're about to embark on a business venture. If your wealth and status changes as a person, the relativity that they have with you might also change. So it's a difficult time for someone who's evaluating a franchise. There's a lot of change ahead of them when they're in
0: that space. Yeah, absolutely. Now, franchising's received a lot of attention in recent years, Kevin, some of which has been negative, to be honest. And it's now one of the most regulated business practices in Australia, with its own piece of legislation being the Franchise Code of Conduct. Do you think this attention's been warranted? And what do you see as the positives about a franchise business models?
1: Look, I think it was warranted. I would probably say the attention the media brought to was the fact that there were some franchisors behaving poorly, and that's really the attention that they brought into from this federal inquiry that occurred. Yes, there's been some tight rules of legislations and some new compliance requirements, but for those doing the right thing, for those with good franchise systems, there's nothing in the changes of legislation that's made the industry sector that we work in any more difficult to comply with. If anything, it's probably made it a little bit more transparent for what we have to disclose and provide as far as information to candidates. So it's a bit more of a balanced playing field for an applicant now looking into buying a franchise with far more disclosure. So I started in an industry that was unregulated and you know saw the franchising code of conduct come in in 1998 when I was fairly new to franchising and back then what it did was it kicked out a lot of the cowboys out of the sector that could no longer really comply or chose not to comply with this legislation and some of those brands faded away into oblivion. If I look at now the same things probably happening a little bit again with some of these tough legislations, I think it'll get rid of and recorrect the sector with only the really kind of more decent franchise brands that are willing to to play in these sort of tougher rules. So it may be a really good thing for the sector. We may see some far more decent franchisors and franchising in in, in the marketplace. But I suppose the one thing that got highlighted out of this legislation was that buying a franchise does involve risks. And it's very hard sometimes when you're the franchisee to accept sometimes that maybe you also had a part in why that business was unsuccessful. Maybe you didn't work as hard as you could. It's far easier to blame the franchisor than sometimes look at your own failings as as an operator.
0: And I think that's where it comes
1: back down to the responsibility of someone like ourselves that has many years of experience in recruiting franchisees. We're not looking for that first person with a checkbook and a heartbeat to just join. We're looking for the right person that fits so that we don't have someone who's in our franchise system that shouldn't be there. We're looking for people with the right drive, the ambition to want to be successful in business and has what it takes to go that extra mile. Now, customer service is getting even harder these days and age with social media. Every single customer that comes in is an online credit or a keyboard warrior. And it can sometimes get to some of these retailers, you know, and they want to retaliate and attack back to the customers. And, you know, that doesn't play well long term for Retaining customers or finding new ones that read those sort of reviews online. So it's a, it's a tough place if you don't do it right, and that's why it's super important that we find the right people that can be successful and understand how to navigate their way through with the support of a
0: franchise system. So franchising as a general concept, what's so good about it? Well, franchising is a model to repeat
1: success. So a business should only be franchised that was already previously successful. And what it brings is people from all sorts of walks of life that have done different things in their past, and they bring that experience to a franchise system as well. And that is a great strength that also works from a franchisee side that they come up with great ideas. Some of the ideas, even in systems around the world, even as large as McDonald's, or ideas that came from the groundswell of franchisees at the coalface saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we also had a breakfast menu It would give us an extra trading period that we currently don't have or some other idea that comes in. So I think franchising brings a collective of minds together with good systems. The more franchisees you have on board, the more royalties are being reinvested back into better systems. Overall, a better business becomes developed You get customers that become loyal to the brand. Those customers repeat their loyalty amongst new locations that have opened up because they've previously been a customer of that brand before. And that can't happen in an individual retail business. If you've got a coffee shop and another coffee shop opens up down the road or in the next suburb, that would be considered a competitor to your business, and you might lose business to that coffee shop if that person goes there if it was a same brand and it was in another suburb, they're serving the exact same coffee I'm serving here. So when their customers are in my area, they're likely to use me because they know it's their favorite brand that they normally are used to going to to get their their coffee or their burger or whatever it is that they buy from that particular brand. And that is something very unique to how franchising works, that we kind of all own and share these customers as a collective group. The bigger the brand grows. The more customers we have to on-use and share together. What negatives
0: are there about franchising?
1: There are negatives in that you, know, you are part of a brand you're paying royalties to. I know when I owned my Nandos, there were times where I could get caught up in the chatter of perhaps even other franchisees that might have been a bit disgruntled. I might not have seen the franchisee or their ops people visit for a week or two and think, well, what am I paying all these these royalties for? What am I actually really getting for it? Once you're in the system and you've been trained how to make that food and trained on everything else, you start to almost believe that it was you that created it all. And at times you almost have to remind yourself, and I used to look at that sign at the front of my store and remember the people weren't walking in for Kev's Flame Real Chicken, they were walking in for Nando's. That was what I was really paying for. So I suppose the negative in any business is that you can start to look at the fees and Maybe me start to overthink that a little bit too much that you're not getting enough value for those fees you're paying. And in some cases that could be true. You know, you've got to also understand that a franchise system needs volume to achieve economies of scale. So the bigger the franchise grows, you know, your meat becomes cheaper, your products and produce become cheaper if that's shared by the or back down to the franchisees. Sometimes Some franchisors see that as another stream of income and don't share all of that revenue that could be available to franchisees. In the case of some of the larger publicly listed companies without naming names who were under the microscope in the federal inquiry, you know, some of those rebates and things that franchisors were receiving weren't passed down the lines because they also wanted to keep their shareholders happy. Now, probably not an ideal scenario for a franchisee where effectively there are two stakeholders in the business, shareholders and franchisees that made a major investment into the brand, but once invested, aren't getting that ongoing buying power that they really hoped when they first signed up for it. So I suppose like any business, there can be negatives. There can be things to watch out for and and use those when you're evaluating a franchise that interests you as to how does this stack up for me? No two franchises are alike. No two franchisors are alike. And they all have different values. Those values eventually trickle down into the franchise model. So really choose your franchise system wisely is probably the best advice I would give someone. And at the same time, you know, Choose the franchisor you want to be in business with or you see yourself in business with because that's the person who ultimately is going to dictate these changes or rules in the business. You need to see if you can build a relationship with that person from day one and, and feel comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, and that's another key factor is if you're a highly entrepreneurial and working under a regime of rules and systems, franchising in general is probably not for you.
1: I would say that I probably am more of that entrepreneurial type of person. And I was fortunate by getting in at the early ground floor. I had a great relationship with the franchisor and there were things that we were able to try and, uh, and experiment with the permission of the franchisor, mind you, to develop. Some of those things were catering menus or you know being a, an alcohol liquor licensed store, having a coffee machine. We were based in, in Ackland Streets in Kildas. We had a lot of cafes and people we wanted to try and compete with for afternoon trade, you know, I I suppose if I was the, you know, 101 franchisee in the system, probably be a little harder to have that same flexibility because most of those systems and disciplines would have been well and truly set. But when you're coming in like I was very early into a franchise system, I think even the franchisor is still open to working and leveraging with their existing franchisees and particularly those that aren't just followers, that are a little bit more entrepreneurial In coming up with some of the good ideas that they can share them with their other franchisees and say, well, this has been working at you know a few of our other locations. Perhaps you could adopt that there. But if you are very entrepreneurial, you're probably more suited to being a franchisor than a franchisee, because it will be very frustrating. You're right when someone wants to change something on the menu and they're told they can't. We had that scenario a couple of times in Nando's where people came in from other stores telling me that they wanted to order a particular product that I'd never even heard of, wasn't on the menu. But in Perth, it was on one of the other stores of Nando's because that franchisee didn't seek approval and just did it on their own accord. And that really confuses the customer. When the customer goes into a store and they see a familiar brand, they're expecting that what they enjoyed at that last venue, they're going to get in your venue. And that's why it's super important why franchisors can't
0: just let anyone change and bastardise the brand, it has to have been consistent. So, Kevin, if somebody's thinking about investing in a business and they're thinking of investing in particular in a franchised business, do you think there's a decision logic, a tick list of steps they have to go through, both from a business and financial perspective, but also on a subjective personal basis? I think there's many questions
1: that someone has to ask. The first one I would, I would ask someone to make is, you know, why are you here? Well, what's what's brought you to this point that you're talking to me? Something's obviously about to change or changing in your life that you're seeking something different to the norm of what you've been doing to now. And for me, that's always a really important thing to understand about that person as to what brought them to this decision. And sometimes I haven't really given it too much thought until I ask that question. And what I suppose I'm looking for is what's creating the motivation and the desire. Is it purely just financial? And, you know, that's okay if it is just purely financial and you're not willing to put in the hard yards to get the financial return you're hoping for. Sometimes it can be a really bad motivation to only be coming into business for the money aspect. Sometimes the harder you chase it, the more it seems to run away from you. So I think the biggest motivation for someone is that they want change. They want change in their life. They're willing to put in those extra hours. They want to be able to put their children perhaps into better school education than what would be possible on their current income. They may want to travel in the future and know that on their current income, that would be quite limited. They might want to live in a better suburb, drive a nice car, buy a nicer house, those motivations can also be really important for someone's long-term success in a business because they become the reasons that they'll set goals and work hard to get the results that they're, they're looking for. So a motivated person is generally a far more successful person in, in business from, from
0: what I've seen. So know why you're there, why you're in the room. Correct. And a good question to ask yourself if you haven't already. Yep, absolutely. And what about industry acumen, Kevin? I mean, I've represented food franchises previously and I'll have people who are middle management executives type people who have just got to pay out and they're looking at buying into a hospitality business, but I find that they don't even know how to cook an egg at home.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that would probably describe the type of person I was when I bought my Nando's. I was 26 years of age and literally could not cook. And what where franchising suited me was that the training's there, the systems and the support are there, so I didn't need to have any business acumen or even any food experience to be able to do what I did because... All of the training is provided and the ongoing support is there as well. So they would send operations managers and people that would work alongside me and my staff in just tweaking and improving our techniques so that, one, we're more consistent and maybe in some cases we might be able to help save the use of labour and materials that we might be wasting from making mistakes. So I think experience is not as important, but it depends what you're looking at, if you looked at franchising in a big funnel, it'd probably be fair to say that the biggest portion of that funnel of all the different franchise systems would have to be food. You know, there's lots and lots of different food franchises out there. And if you think about it, when we're dealing with a customer in a food transaction in, a in say, a, a casual dining or a, a fast food sort of environment, you know, the average time we're spending with a customer might be you know, less than a couple of minutes in the transaction of taking their order. Whereas if you looked at the next segment, which is probably, say, retail, you know, at the time it might take someone in a retail environment that's selling, say, say, for example, if you were in a homeware store and you need to be able to explain to someone the difference between this particular rock or that fry pan, et cetera, that's where I would probably say that a sales acumen or some background in selling becomes far more important than just good customer service skills. So if I was recruiting for something that needed that requirement, I'd be looking at that type of skill set, which can be difficult to learn. It's easy to be good at customer service. Some people just aren't salespeople and aren't as suited to those sort of roles. If you go further down, you start getting into businesses like business to business, where you're selling, for example, a service to another business, and you know that might be freight logistics or any types of service that really requires a really sort of almost experienced person who's willing to go and cold call, knock on doors, look for those customers and create that, again, a much more defined skill set that someone is required to have. When we go down to the real sort of basic end of franchising, not to say that it's basic to push a lawnmower or, or be a man in a van, But the motivations behind that type of business that may have no staff at all really takes a different type of individual that is completely self-motivated. If they don't get out of bed and they don't get in their van that morning, they have no turnover. If they go on holidays for a month at a time, they have no income unless they've got someone else that can drive the van or push that lawnmower. So again, even looking at that type of franchising the motivation and driver of, of the person buying it is probably more important than Acumen. But another thing to consider when we're looking at franchise applicants, I think the easiest thing, and it's probably why there's so many food businesses around the world that are franchised, is that it's actually probably the easiest sector. You know, in, in, in very simple terms, I get this told to me a lot that, well, everyone eats and not everyone uses every other product or service that exists out there. has probably a fair way of looking at it if you think about it. But customers can be very choosy when it comes to where they want to eat or who they want to deal with. So, you know, yes, you've got to have good product. You've got to have great customer service. And if a franchisee can bring those two things together and work with a franchise system where they're willing to treat customers almost like friends and create relationships with customers that want to bring more of their friends to this place and say, look, it's a really great vibe. The food's really decent, but the atmosphere is fantastic. And we've all found ourselves doing that from time to time, whether it's with a franchise or an independent business, where you want to tell someone that's close to you about a really great venue that you've found almost like a little golden nugget that, you, you know, something that yeah. you want to share. It, right, rightfully, also people
0: do the same when they've had a
1: bad experience. So it's why customer service is probably the most important
0: acumen we look for. Yeah, absolutely. But you are making a business decision if you invest in a franchise and you know there's a process. So you might have decided that there's something about this business that I really like. I can do this. I've had a good chat with Kevin. I make an application for the franchise and I receive the disclosure document that's required under the Code of Conduct. And you know, that disclosure document will have a copy of the franchise agreement. It will detail all the costs and fees involved we give you some general background about the experience of the franchisor and the size of the franchise network. So it provides a degree of transparency to the applicant, but is that sufficient due diligence on its own, Kevin? In your experience, what other due diligence should a potential investor undertake? What are the absolute mandatory things they should do?
1: Look, I think the ideal is where existing franchisees already are in that system, and that's hard because not all franchise systems I deal with will have that. Sometimes you may be that first applicant. But where there are existing franchisees, think about it like talking to your future self. It's a great opportunity to actually pick up the phone or go and visit these franchisees and say, here's where I'm at. I like this franchise, probably in a similar space you all once were when you were evaluating the purchase of your business that you, you now own. There's a lot of things to me that look really good on the surface. There's a lot of things I don't know. Um, If you were doing this all over again, would you do anything differently? You know, what do you like about the business? What don't you like about the business? Are those things that you don't like about the business deal breakers as far as you're concerned? Can they be improved? Can they be fixed? Is it something that the franchise is always working with? That sort of due diligence is probably more valuable than what you're going to read in the disclosure document that may not make a lot of sense to you. You know, you'll need to rely on probably paid advisors, you know, a good solicitor experience in franchising that can help you understand what's in the disclosure document franchise agreement. And likewise, a good business advisor and accountant that can look at the business and maybe any previous sales data or anything else the franchisor is willing to share with you on the performance of the existing franchisees. Looking at the disclosure document though can give you information like, has there been any franchisees in the system before you that have failed? And I think that's probably a key thing that I would be looking at is if so, what happened? You know, make sure you understand that. And if possible, if there's a phone number of the previous franchisees, which you know realistically the franchise or needs to provide those details if they're requested and the exiting franchisee is willing to be contactable, is have someone that can understand, perhaps might have been a unique one-off scenario, but we want to make sure it's not something that potentially could be repeated with you if you were buying that business. But due diligence is really important, Gary. It's something that a lot of people don't understand what to do, how to do it. Having a good advisor with you is really important. A lot of people are quite shocked when we actually sometimes say to, to an applicant that, unfortunately, you don't fit what we're looking for because they do think it's something that if they've got the finances and the motivation that they can buy it. Now, it's not every day that I'm saying no to an applicant, but when it does happen, it can actually be quite offending to the applicant that we've not chosen them. And, and I hope sometimes that people don't get offended by that decision and more feel that we've probably protected them and the franchise system if we didn't feel they were a good fit.
0: Yeah, I think also those best practice franchisors will have processes in their application process, like providing a business plan that demonstrates that the applicant understands the financial model, how they're going to make some money, doing a discovery day in store, and especially with a new franchise where, hey, you know, can I spend a couple of hours behind the counter as such and see how this works?
1: I couldn't agree more, Gary. I think a discovery day is a really useful tool. I actually really encourage franchisors and franchisees to seek out those sort of opportunities where possible. I think even just, you know, if you can do a day uh, working alongside some staff, uh, perhaps even a franchisee or, or in a company-owned store, if there's no franchisees in the system that you're able to get access to, gives you a different perspective than sitting in a store for maybe half an hour eating a product as a consumer to spending a whole day in there, seeing what happens first thing in the morning with prep. I remember when I first gave up my corporate job, used to wear a suit and tie every day to work. And, you know, there's almost a a feeling of of self-worth you have when you throw a suit on every day. And here I was now working in the back of this kitchen in the cold, working with marinade and chicken. And if someone had probably given me the opportunity a week after I'd signed my franchise agreement, it was in my store and said, I'll wave a magic wand and you can go back to your office job, I probably would have taken it in a heartbeat. You know, I wasn't quite ready for the monumental leap, even though it was successful. I think it became successful because I had no other choice. I had to make this thing work. But, you know, I think a discovery day would have given me an opportunity maybe to see what was really involved, how much work's involved when you're doing something like that, and making sure it's a good fit. You know, if I was probably to choose yeah. a franchise system today with the experience that I've now gained in life and in business, I don't know necessarily that I probably would go down the exact same path of what I purchased. I think I'd still buy a franchise, but I'd probably be looking for something that's maybe a little bit easier to own and run than than what I had.
0: You've worked with a lot of very successful brands. I have, yes. And very successful franchise networks. Are there some very common factors that you've found in successful franchise systems? I think it's the disciplines. The disciplines
1: that a franchise system has either to what they believe their brand identity is about – and they're very strict on sticking with those brand identities and making sure that when they're recruiting franchisees, that the franchisee is a good brand advocate to those identities of what the brand's about and willing to almost wear that brand like a badge of honor and be a, uh, an ambassador for that brand. That's really super important that the franchisor has that real belief themselves in their brand. And if I look at brands like Grilled, which uh, you know, I have worked and in, was involved with from the very beginning of when they, when they began franchising, that was certainly something that you know was very inspiring to work around Simon Crow, who was a big believer and came from a background of being involved with other businesses in brand and brand development. And that's I think what has made Grilled even still to say a very successful business because of their belief and structure of what their brand was to be. And that went right through to the type of staff that they would employ, to the franchisees that they had, to who worked at head office. The look and feel of their environment, their stores, everything else, it all flows through as part of that brand values. And I've seen that same sort of success appear with many of those brands that are successful. And whether you look at McDonald's and many different brands out there, it's sticking to what has made them successful and repeating that uh, constantly.
0: Yeah, that constant duplication. Now, you're currently working with a new franchise, The Famish Wolf. What's your role with the Famished Wolf, Kevin? And I assume you don't take on new clients unless you see something that wants to make you get involved. What what did you see in the Famished Wolf?
1: Well, I've had an involvement, just like I mentioned earlier, in the burger sector of franchising and and I've certainly seen how that's exploded and and grown. The fact is that burgers are very, very popular in Australia and and an ever-increasing category. And when I came across the Famished Wolf, I actually was almost a bit dismissive at first when this gentleman rang me to tell me that he's got a brand, he wants a franchise, and almost felt he was probably a little bit too late into this game. And that was until I actually understood his story and what he was actually creating and the gap that he'd seen in the marketplace that, to be quite honest, I hadn't even noticed this gap myself. And he'd gone out and proven it over two different, very distinct locations that showed that there was actually a lot of room in the marketplace in Australia for a very large burger player to still be active in this space. And I suppose what made it unique was that they have looked at a strategy around, can you serve good quality burgers and rats and other bits and pieces that they do to people in industrial estates, would typically used to be a lunch bar that might have sold dim sims, potato cakes, maybe a really average burger. And food is kind of almost accepted that it can be of a very low standard for some reason in these industrial states because they're selling to mostly factory workers and some occasional office staff. Well, you know, Simon at the Famished Wolf proved that it actually can be different. With online being a really big part of the way people want to be served. My kids are no different. They'll order on Uber Eats when, you know, even some of my kids are now licensed and can jump in a car five minutes up the road and go and get something. But the convenience of staying home and having it brought to them is what they want. Now, some of these industrial estates are literally on the suburbs or the fringe of suburbs of homes that surround these sort of areas. And so the very first store that Simon opened in the Famished Wolf was exactly that. He saw an opportunity that you cannot be in major shopping centres, your big Westfields and so on, where you've got massive restaurants and also then expect to pay huge commissions to your Ubers and your menu logs, etc. if you're doing the other where you're paying the big money in rent. So This model allowed him that he can service a form of customers during the day, but still in that outer reach of suburbs, get to the homes and the businesses that might want something delivered during the day, but also during the evening when typically most of these lunch bars wouldn't trade at all, which means the rent opportunity for these sorts of sites is very low and nowhere on par with what a lot of these other gourmet burger places are playing at. Most of them are very inexpensive retail. The other site that he went out and proved was, A site into like a suburban village where there's a Woolies and maybe hinged with, you know, 20 or 30 specialty retail. Again, in a suburban area where you can have customers that can come in in both locations, dine in for lunch or for dinner, but also have a business that can trade online and have a rent, again, affordable enough to be able to allow for the commissions that are paid for. If you think about Uber as a disruptor, you know if you were a major chain that had you know 200 seated restaurants of course you wouldn't really like Uber when it comes on board when you realize you have to pay uh, further commissions which effectively become more almost expensive if not more than the rent you pay mm-hmm. so the way that Simon built this model what really became attractive to me was that it actually allowed for online online's not going anywhere if anything it's becoming more and more popular uh, I related a bit like when I had my Nando store. We saw that every year that credit card transactions were becoming greater, didn't get smaller. Uh, people got used to that convenience of paying with a credit card than they did with cash. In the early days, most of our transactions were cash and very few were credit cards. These days, most people pay on credit cards and less people <clears throat> pay in cash. Well, we're seeing that same sort of shift and change happening with the way people order food. And a large percentage of people, and lockdowns have been probably a great example, if you're in a big Westfield with a 200-seat restaurant, you're in lockdown, you could do just as many sales as what the Famished Wolf could do out of a suburban site, because we both had the same access to customers that could only pick up or have their food delivered. But the other guys are paying still quite a large amount of money in rent, while this model is paying very little. Uh, so I think what attracted me to the Famished Wolf was just a different way of thinking and looking for an opportunity working in currently, you know, 2021 and going beyond is what should burger franchising kind of look like? Does it need to yeah. be those big elaborate franchises in those big outfits, which means big expensive fit-outs, $800,000 to $1 million. One
0: in Southland in Melbourne that just cost over a million dollars.
1: yeah. Yeah, and so that's a big thing to sort of change in the equation that you can still have businesses that are really profitable, and I'm talking, you know, quite decent profitability that are being achieved from these businesses on really modest investments. So return on investment and return on capital is far quicker and far greater, therefore risk becomes a little less when you're making those types of investments. You know, rent is quite low, so your break-even point is also fairly low per week. So if you do have a slightly slower week for whatever happens that week is a bit slower, not as stressed as, you know, for these some of these big retail locations. So they were some of the key points that, that attracted me. The franchisor himself got a background in food and, uh, you know, makes yeah. a really good product, very passionate about his food, you know, very good on social media, very good at understanding how to work the platforms of online retail. He's really kind of packaged all that up as systems ready to build his model and franchise it. He told me himself one of the main reasons he decided to franchise was his customers telling him, we wish you had more locations of the Famished Wolf. We love your burgers. Are you going to open up more? And I think he heard that enough times that curiosity got the better of him to look at finding someone that can help him develop his model into a franchise.
0: And Kevin, your favourite burger at the Famish Wolf? I had it only last
1: week and I I know it had double bacon. I think it was something called the Dirty Double, I think, from from memory. But I've tried to, every time I go down there, have a different burger. And I, I must admit, I've still not worked my way through the entire menu. And I try not to have the same burger, even if I enjoyed it last time again, and try something different. Every burger I've had has been really, really good. If I didn't believe in it and the food wasn't great, I'd have a real big problem representing it.
0: Okay, great. I was talking to Simon as well, the founder of The Famish Wolf, and my understanding is he's invested in the design of the restaurants and in terms of that flexibility, it's given the brand flexibility in regards to location. So you've talked about industrial estate, the local shopping village, what else are those sort of locations suit?
1: Well, I mean, at this stage, they're probably the main two that we are looking at franchising. There will be other options. We are actually testing out sort of dark kitchens as an option as well, where, you know, we might even be operating out of a factory and servicing customers online only with no dine in experience. But that's something that we are about to test for the first time with a company owned store like we've done with the other two locations to prove the concept most likely that will only be offered to franchisees that have one of our other existing models as another form of add-on i don't know that it will be enough for someone to have on its own but it would be a great add-on to one of the other franchises that they might own in an industrial and also have an extended reach in their area if that opportunity presented itself. But uh, the two options that we currently have, there's really no difference if we look at the two sites that we currently operate in the Fannish Wolf. The turnovers are actually about the same. From a visual aspect point of view, The store at Patterson Lakes is more retail friendly because it needs to be. Whilst we've designed the look and feel of the store, we're competing against the local fish and chip shop, the local Vietnamese bakery. People who generally don't even get a designer involved and kind of, you know, throw together a store and it's just a a takeaway shop. So when you're competing against that, you don't need to be competing against what you would typically see in a major Westfield shopping centre, where you know very very expensive, very very elaborate fit outs are typically expected in those sorts of centres. It's more what you'd expect in a suburban shopping centre. Will look better than your local fish and chip shop or your local burgers store that would typically have existed in the past. And it's clean, and it looks great, and it's you know funky, friendly sort of place to be. We also don't want to make it too comfortable. They're not places we want people to dwell long term. The environment needs to have someone sit down for maybe 20 minutes while they enjoy their burger and their chips and their drink. Uh, we do have liquor licenses in our locations and it is something we look at when we're looking at locations. Is Can the business be liquor licensed? Because it becomes also the place that someone might take out their missus or their girlfriend or their boyfriend out for a nice lunch or a nice dinner and maybe it's a birthday celebration. Maybe they want to go somewhere they can celebrate with a cocktail or a glass of wine or a beer. It might be just to have a nice, quiet one at the end of the week. That, I think, adds an extra element of income and also the potential of a little bit more of an enjoyable place for someone to go to that's a, a casual dining, restaurant, casual environment.
0: As an offer, it's got a very broad demographic appeal, hasn't it? Especially with the license premise, nice environment.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I suppose by visiting their locations, I've seen kind of really two different types of sets of customers and the suburban model really is more your your family, office workers, business people, reps and people like that who are just on the road grabbing a bite as they go. Certainly during the daytime and during the evening is is a lot more family environment. In our industrial estates, you're going to see people in the day, uh, again, in high-vis tops, you're going to see reps, you know, different type of people that work in those sorts of areas. But at night time, what really surprises me is you'll see the families. If they know about it, it, becomes like that little golden nugget, that hidden gem that they know about a place they can go to. That's still, you know, a nice place to go and have a burger or pick up from to take back home or get the delivery from. They're unique. They work. The good thing is we can duplicate these locations almost any suburb. In Melbourne and the demand for burgers is huge.
0: Are there particular areas in Melbourne that you've identified that uh, are crying out for a famished wolf and when I say a famished wolf like there's definitely a, an absence of burger players in the market?
1: Yeah I suppose every suburb and location is something that we would look at purely based on the individual the franchisee you know if they want to be in a particular area let's just say they wanted to be in the western suburbs and they they lived in Deer Park or or, or Sunshine in some of those areas, Altona. Well, you'd have a mixture of options. You could look for a retail type site, might be on the outside of a shopping centre or a shopping village, but there's also going to be some of those industrial areas that they could also look at. So I suppose that the reality would come down to budget. If a franchise applicant would say to me, "Look, I've only got maybe somewhere around you know 100 to 150 thousand dollars to invest," then maybe an industrial-style burger store might be more in their alley as far as what it will suit their investment level. It's probably going to be upwards of sort of 200k to buy into a one that might be in a shopping village. If you're going to take your friends or, or family to see either store, either one will be will be attractive and will be fit for the purpose it has been designed for. But the one that might be an industrial area might have previously been a lunch bar. It might be something that we can convert into a famished wolf store that might already had some of the services we need, like a grease trap or extraction. Maybe we don't have to put a new shop front in things that we could maybe keep as they are, all of those things will reduce even further the investment that someone needs to make. So I suppose if someone was interested in looking at owning their own burger business and something like the Famish Wolf appeals to them, the first thing I would probably say they should do is make a time to sit down with us or have a Zoom meeting with us so that they can understand what we actually will provide them in support we have a lot of training manuals. A lot of these are all available now online to franchisees so they can onboard their staff even before they do their first shifts with training modules that franchisees' staff can access individualized by their own email address and password. We can actually see from the back end who's actually viewing these training materials and perhaps who might need a little bit more focus and attention that isn't. It uh, means that the speed of information is consistent across the group. When we make a change or we bring in perhaps a, a new special burger for the month, um, as something maybe for October, and we want to push that out to everyone. We want that to be consistent across all of our stores. We can videotape the filming of that creation of that burger and then send that out to everyone to view, or maybe even with a questionnaire and a quiz at the end of it that they need to complete to make sure that they've actually watched it These sorts of um, tools don't normally exist in franchise systems of this size that I've worked with in the past. You're normally talking about 50, 60, maybe 100 stores before they have this level of sophistication in them. So Simon wanted to really stand out and provide best practice in franchising to his franchisees. So wherever there's been an opportunity to invest in creating a system, he's done so and continues to do so. And I think that's what we would certainly love to walk someone through is, is show them the business from the front end, give them an opportunity to come and enjoy a burger with us and talk about the business and understand its financials, but also understand how you're going to be supported, you know, what the training is at the very beginning, how we help them find the sites, how we help them hire their staff, the support they'll be given after they've opened. All of those things are really important to understand when you're evaluating a franchise.
0: And all those services that you just mentioned, training, finding a location, building the shop, equipment package, fit out, all of that's included in the package? It is, Gary, correct. And at those investment levels that you
1: mentioned before? Correct, Gary, that's right. So everything's designed to be as close as we can get it to a turnkey scenario for a franchisee. Now, no two sites are going to be exactly the same. And that's what the beauty of with what we're looking at is that we might find some sites that can be cheaper. And that tickles everyone's language. You know, if I can find an existing business that previously was used by another food operator, there might be a cool room already in place, there might be extraction there. Those things are going to save us money. If we can negotiate, in some cases, with some landlords, we actually get that equipment for free. Sometimes we can negotiate with a landlord maybe for a rent-free period that might be fairly significant, even past the period we need to just get the store open. Those sorts of things will help maybe even capital contribution depending on the landlord that might even be able to give us some funds towards building the site. So as I say, no two sites are the same. It is really um, a franchise that if you're interested in it, you should call and evaluate whether you're suitable for it and whether you've got the funds to make something like this will we'll assist you in finding out if you're flexible enough then you may find a site that might not be five minutes away from home. might be a little bit further away, but it might perfectly suit your budget.
0: You were just mentioned before, you know, sitting down with you and working out if the Famish Wolf is the right fit for a particular person. But what about that individual? Are there particular individuals that you're looking for that you think would fit well with the Famish Wolf brand?
1: I think whenever I'm looking for someone for a food business... I want them to be able to sell themselves to me within the first couple of minutes of me talking with them because that's about the same amount of time they get to make an impression on a customer when they're serving a customer for the first time. So it's a little trick of mine that I look at when I'm speaking with an applicant who's inquiring is how engaged are they when I first chat with them and first discuss this opportunity with them and how well are they at selling themselves to me? Because if – the one thing that everyone knows the most about is themselves. And if they can't sell themselves and they've known that person that they've grown up with since they've existed uh, their whole life and they can't sell themselves to me in two minutes, how the hell are they going to sell the product or sell that product that they've got to, you know, after buying into a brand within that same two-minute time? So that's a key thing I look at is what impression that franchise applicant makes on me after the first discussion that may or may not make a decision on where I go from there. In some cases, it may not be to invite them to enter into that recruitment process if I don't feel they're that engaging with me over the phone
0: call. So, look, the Famish Wolf is a new franchise based on a proven business model, but do you think there are uh, additional benefits getting in on the ground floor, so to speak, Kevin?
1: Look, I think getting in on the ground floor is a benefit and a risk. You've got no real understanding of what's going to happen next as far as where the brand's going to grow. Will it grow? Uh, will it be a big brand or will it remain small? And they things that you really have to be you know, evaluating when you're looking at a franchise that's not yet grown. But on the other side, it means you're going to have access to perhaps some of the best locations that might be available that haven't yet been spoken for. If you think about some of the bigger franchise systems, by the time we know they're a very successful, very large brand name, most of the best sites are probably already taken.
0: Like multi-store franchisees.
1: Yeah, and some of the existing franchisees in the system is exactly what I was about to say, will be the people that will be more likely in line for that next really great location that comes up than someone like me, who's never been part of the franchise system yet. I'm an unproven quantity, as opposed to a franchisee that is. So I think getting in early gives you the ability, potentially, if you pick wisely, you can end up with a really great location. There's more opportunity for you to be a multi-site operator and grow as the franchise itself grows. If you've got that little bit more entrepreneurial streak in you, you've got the ability to maybe even add value in some areas in the business, where you can, you know, you might come up with a new product or a new idea that might get implemented in the business.
0: All right. Well, fantastic, Kevin. Um, just in general, is there anything that we've not touched on today that you would, you know, at a barbecue, somebody said, I'm thinking of buying a franchise business, that you would say, look, here's my general advice. This is what you should do. I think the
1: only thing that we haven't really covered on is how do most people afford to buy these franchises. And I think that's probably the one thing to remember that you've got to have some form of either equity or capital to start in businesses. Banks won't fund your great idea. Uh, They don't want to be your business partner in a failed venture or even in a successful one. They are really just there to loan money against a form of asset and they don't really see businesses, certainly ones that haven't yet traded, as assets So I think the the important thing to, to think about when you're looking at buying a franchise is, how am I going to fund this? Have I had a chat to a bank yet? What is realistic for me that maybe I can afford? And then, you know, if you are looking to want to be involved in a business that you can afford, you're not going to get disappointed to get really hung up, really excited about something that now you really want to buy, you really want to be part of, and then find you're not going to have the funds and resources to do. Unfortunately, I meet with and deal with people like that every single day that just don't understand. They think going to a bank, because we say, these brilliant TV commercials, the bank's just wanting to lend us money, and maybe they've gone and bought a car before on a small deposit or bought a house on a small deposit that are buying a business would be the same. Unfortunately, it's, it's not that easy. So generally speaking, most people that we deal with are going to probably leverage against their home or their equity in some form that they have, and are willing also to make that mental shift that they're willing to risk what they've worked for in the past to leverage for their future success. And if you don't think you can do that or manage that, then probably
0: maybe you're not ready, or maybe self-employment is just not for you. Well, thanks, Kevin. Sounds like... The Famish Wolf is a pretty amazing opportunity. Now, for anyone listening to this podcast who is keen to pick Kevin's brain and learn a bit more about franchising, but in particular, if you want to know more about the Famish Wolf, there's a button beneath this podcast to submit your inquiry and Kevin himself will be in touch soon. Thanks again, Kevin, for joining us on our podcast today and we'll get an update from you soon. Thank you, Gary. Thanks again, Kevin. Eden Exchanges was brought to you by the team at Eden Exchange. In this episode, we spoke to Kevin Bajaya, who is the Managing Director of Franchise For You, speaking on behalf of the Famished Wolf Franchise. To find out more about Kevin and the Famished Wolf Franchise, or to discover other episodes by Eden Exchanges, head to our networking website, businessbuyandest.com. You can also subscribe to the series on iTunes, or Stitches if you're using Android. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. For recent info in the buying, selling, and investing world,